Chapter the Twenty Third of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Theatre Royal. It has been said that Madame Broadbent had various subtle ways of advertising her academy, as the directory has it, by which she generally contrived to kill two birds with one stone. One of these would scarcely have been practicable in any but a theatrical town like Manchester, where not even the fierceness of party politics could close the theatre doors. She was particularly fond of a good play, and as particularly careful of her own pocket, so she watched for such occasions as a special benefit or bespeak night to engage one of the dress-boxes and take tickets for a select party of her pupils. The young ladies, apart from all natural love of amusement and display, were taught to regard their admission to Mrs. Broadbent's train as a high honour, a mark of exceeding distinction, and few were the parents, so stern or so niggardly, as to refuse the four shillings for a box ticket, when Madame invited and Miss pleaded. The then Theatre Royal in Fountain Street, which was opened in 1807, which was opened in 1807, under Macready's management, and brought to the ground by fire in 1844, was, in 1820, a building so capacious, so solidly built, it might not fear comparison with Drury Lane. Stage, scene-rooms, dressing-rooms were all on an extensive scale. There were three tiers of boxes, a large pit, and an immense gallery breaking the line of the third tier. With the exception of the large side boxes, which were partially on the stage, all these boxes were open to the view, having only a divisional barrier the height of the parapet, light iron pillars supporting the weight above. There were no chairs, only narrow baize-covered benches, innocent of backs, and the theatre was lighted by sperm-oil lamps, those round the auditorium being suspended by cords over pulleys, so as to be lowered for lighting, trimming, etc. But the glory of that theatre, of which it was shorn at a later date, was its box lobby, a lofty open promenade, wide as a street and long in proportion, for its one grand entrance was in Fountain Street, the other in Back Mosley Street. Only for the step or two at either end, carriages might have driven through, or, depositing their living loads within at the saloon doors, have turned easily and driven back. This lobby was naturally a lounge as well as a waiting place for servants and others with wraps and patterns, neither carriages nor hackney coaches being numerous, and the streets being, well, not quite so clean or well paved as at present. The ten days' trial of Henry Hunt and his compatriots at York had, as is well known, resulted in sentence of imprisonment for different terms to the discomfiture of one party, the exultation of the other. Close upon the promulgation of this sentence came Easter week, at the beginning of April, 1820, when Jabez had little more than a month to serve of his apprenticeship. Edmund Keane was then playing at the Theatre Royal, supported by Sophia McGibbon, daughter of Woodfall, the memorable printer of Junius, a favourite on the Manchester boards. Either to mark their satisfaction at the result of the trial, or their admiration of the great tragedian, the officers of the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry bespoke Othello for the Wednesday evening, and Mrs. Broadbent made the most of the glorious opportunity. 
she engaged a box close to the centre of the dress circle, on terms well understood, and as small people take less room than large ones, and her front row was very juvenile, she contrived to make it a profitable investment, even though she took a teacher with her at a lower rate. The young ladies assembled at the school, and made quite a procession to the theatre, where Mrs. Broadbent's own maid took charge of hats and cloaks, and waited drearily in the saloon. Then, duly marshalled by Madame Broadbent and Miss Nuttall, they filed into the box decorously and took their seats, the youngest in the van, the whole programme having been rehearsed and rehearsed for a day or two beforehand. A bouquet of white rosebuds, they might have been called. White muslin was so general. But one lady blushed in pink gauze, and Augusta Ashton's lovely head and shoulders were set off by delicate blue crepe. There were round necklaces of coral or pearl, long loose gloves of cambric or kid, and every damsel in her teens had her fan. But of fans, commend me to Mrs. Broadbent's. It was no light trifle of ivory or sandalwood, but of strong green paper, spotted with gold, with ribs and frame of ebony, and it measured nearly half a yard when closed. Her well-saved, long-waisted, stiff-brocaded robe and petticoat might have been her wedding dress kept for state occasions, but that fan, slung by a ribbon from her wrist, was part of her individuality, the symbol of her authority, inseparable from her walking self. A relic of her younger days, she employed it, citing Queen Charlotte as her exemplar, to arrest attention, to admonish, to chastise, and woe to the luckless little lady on whom it came in admonition. The box was filled to the very door, where Miss Nuttall kept guard. Madame Broadbent displayed her own important person on the third row above the curly heads of the smaller fry, and to Augusta Ashton, being a profitable pupil of whom she had reason to be proud, was allotted a seat next to herself. The house was full and fashionable, both stage-boxes being occupied by members of the Manchester Yeomanry, resplendent in silver and blue. Lawrence Aspinall, John Wormsley and Ben Travis were of the party. In the pit were the critics, pressing as closely as possible to the stage. Nods and smiles from friends in different quarters of the theatre greeted the component parts of Madame Broadbent's bevy of innocence, and smiles responded. Then rose the green curtain upon Edmund Keane's Othello and Mrs. McGibbon's Desdemona. The audience was enthralled. Act by act the players kept attention fixed, and all went well until the last scene. But as Othello pressed the murderous pillow down, one of Madame Broadbent's white-frocked misses in the front row, with whose relatives Desdemona lodged when she was not Desdemona, started up and cried out piteously, He's killing Mrs. McGibbon! He's killing Mrs. McGibbon! The clear voice rang through the house to the consternation of the actors, the amusement of some, and the annoyance of the audience. Some of the officers laughed outright in the very face of the tragic moor, but Madame Broadbent was furious, all the more that she was bound to suppress her passion then and there. For the credit of her academy, she, however, felt bound to resent so flagrant a breach of decorum. Tapping the tearful culprit on the shoulder with her ready fan, in a stern whisper, scarcely less audible than the child's impulsive tribute to the great tragedian, she asked, 
how can you bemean yourself so far, miss, to the disgrace of the school? And beckoning the child forth, she was passed to Miss Nuttall at the very back of the box, sobbing more for Mrs. McGibbon than for Mrs. Broadbent. This caused a change of places, which brought Miss Ashton more prominently into view. Lawrence Aspinall, an ardent admirer of beauty, put his hand on the shoulder of the officer before him, and said, "'Good heavens, Wormsley, do you see that lovely creature in Mother Broadbent's box?' "'Which?' contemptuously echoed. "'The divine beauty in celestial blue. Who is she?' And his admiring gaze brought a conscious blush to the young lady's forehead, although the queerest was beyond her hearing. "'In blue?' And Wormsley lazily scanned the group. "'Oh, that's Charlotte's cousin.' Augusta Ashton, yes, she is rather pretty, and the married man turned away to the stage. Rather pretty, she is an angel. You must introduce me. Well, well, answered the other testily, anxious to end a colloquy which distracted his attention from the tragedy. I'll see, but she's only a schoolgirl, not yet sixteen. Egad, but she looks seventeen, and she'll mend of that disqualification every day and still he kept his eyes on Augusta, in a manner extremely disconcerting, though her romantic little heart fluttered, for in him she recognised the Adonis who had reared his horse so threateningly in front of her uncle Chadwick's house. The green curtain came down amid universal plaudits. Ladies rose to rest themselves and chat as was the custom. Gentlemen quitted their seats to join friends elsewhere, to lounge in saloon or box lobby, or to take a hasty glass at the garrick's head adjoining. Amongst the latter were Wormsley and Aspinall, but they did not return when the prompter's bell rang the curtain up. There was a pas de deux of Tyrolean peasants by the chief dancers of the company, then followed an interlude, and then a comic song, all before the last piece. But the comrades did not return, and Augusta found herself wondering whether the handsome officer with the rich copper-coloured hair would come back at all. They did make their appearance during the progress of the drama, Monk Lewis's Castle Sceptre, in which Mrs. McGibbon gave ocular demonstration that she was not killed, both seemingly exhilarated, but they left again before the drama concluded. Well drilled as were Madame Broadbent's pupils, they could not quit their box in the same order they entered it. Big people so seldom recognised the right of little ones to precedence. They straggled into the saloon, separated by the crowd. There Madame Broadbent, assisted by Miss Nuttall, collected her brood, and passing on to the box lobby, they looked around for their respective attendants. There was one, a fine young man in height, some five feet ten, who sprang forward with shawl and calèche for Miss Ashton, at the same time, bowing deferentially to the pompous dame with the big fan. He proceeded to adjust the shawl round the dimpled shoulders, so very precious to him, and said, I hope you've had a pleasant evening, Miss Augusta. Then bowing again to Mrs. Broadbent, he offered his hand respectfully to the young lady to conduct her home. On the instant they were intercepted by Aspinall and Wormsley, neither so sober as he might have been. Augusta, here's my friend Aspinall. Deuce good fellow, quite struck with you, was Captain Wormsley's unceremonious introduction, at a time, too, when introductions were somewhat formal. Quite, Miss Ashton, he assented. Upon my soul, I am. Your charming face has quite captivated me. 
and those eyes pierce my heart like bullets. Permit me to escort you home. There was an amusing consciousness of his own attractions in this free expression of his admiration. A woman of the world, with her weapons ready, might have dismissed him either with hauteur, badinage, or cool indifference. But to Augusta Ashton, almost a child in years, it was bewildering and disconcerting. Her eyes fell, her colour rose. She stood silent, abashed, and confused. Native modesty took alarm. Jabez came to her relief. Miss Ashton is under my protection, sir. She requires no other escort. The words were cool as those of a man who, having his temper well under control, did not choose to quarrel, though his pulses were beating like drums. With cool effrontery, his old antagonist looked him full in the face. So it's you again, yellow skirt, a nice fellow to protect a pretty girl, a fellow without skill to defend himself, or spirit to resent an insult, and the speaker's red lips curled with derision. The eyes of Jabez kindled, and his teeth set. There was no lack of spirit, but not the spirit of which common brawls are made. He was anxious to get the trembling Augusta away from the gathering crowd. Madame Broadbent, shorn of half her pretty train, came up aghast. "'Young lady! Miss Ashton! What is—' A wave of the silver-braided sleeve set her aside, chafed and indignant at the freedom and impertinence. "'Keep out of the way, Mother Broadbent. Look after the rest of your lambkins. Miss Ashton's cousin and I propose to see your pupil home.' "'All right, Augusta,' said Wormsley thickly. "'We'll see you home.' But she clung in dismay to the arm of Jabez, and not Hercules himself could have torn her from him. Ignoring the coarse taunt of Lieutenant Aspinall, he endeavoured to lead her past them, simply saying to Captain Wormsley, Mr. Ashton committed his daughter to my care. I am answerable for her safety. Aspinall, mistaking his calmness for pusillanimity, again intercepted their passage, and would have taken Augusta's hand. But a will strong as his own, an arm strengthened by lifting and carrying heavy burdens, was opposed to him. Jabez struck no blow. He thrust out an arm with muscles like leather, swept the offensive lieutenant aside, and down he went on the stone pavement of the lobby. "'Bravo, Clegg!' exclaimed a voice from the rear, and the burly form of Ben Travis parted the curious crowd, as Leviathan parts the waves, before the infuriated Aspinall could rise or warmly interpose. "'That's right. Take the young lady away, and leave these gallant books to me.' I'll guard the honour of our corps. The terrified young lady and the inebriated young bully were alike in sure hands, but consequential Madame Broadbent, ignored, forgotten, had received a blow to her importance she was not likely to forget or overlook. End of chapter the twenty third.